Coming up on Stu Does America, President Biden is really nailing it with this border stuff, isn't he? Sydney Watson is here. She will talk about the situation down south. And masks for thee, but not for me, is once again the slogan of the hour as John Kerry decides to endanger all of humanity by going maskless for a bit on this recent flight. How utterly dangerous and despicable, you monster. So what's going on with the outbreak of Asian American violence? Let's get into it and do the Atlanta shootings. Stu does America. We're starting to learn more about those horrific murders that took place in Atlanta this week. Here's what we know. The killer is a deranged lunatic. And whatever motive this deranged lunatic claims he had, it does not absolve him from his own actions. He did this. It is his fault. He owns it. I have this currently controversial opinion that the person who commits a crime should be the one held responsible for the crime. We know whatever dumb narrative the media comes up with will be used again and again and then quickly discarded only to rise once more when it's convenient. We also know that the blame game is in full effect. Competition to be the winning narrative is fierce. Everyone with an axe to grind is trying to connect their pet cause to this tragic event. And it's all happening before the facts are in. The primary suspect, you guessed it, the church. Or or is it uh, President Donald Trump? Uh, Or or is it whiteness in general? Hmm. Me personally, I generally like to have a bit more information before I go accusing churches or presidents or skin colors of causing murder. But hey, I'm a little old fashioned like that. All the crazy kids in the media today have a different way of doing journalisming. They do what I like to call making crap up. The idea that people like the president are responsible sort of goes like this. Trump said Kung flu in like March 2020, and then he kept saying the virus came from China. So now in March 2021, some crazy person turned into a psycho killer. Uh, Okay, I guess, you know, maybe. But there are some questions that do need to be asked about that narrative. That's what a good journalist does. And then there's what the New York Times is doing. Asian Americans are being attacked. Why are hate crime charges so rare? Oh, they're being attacked. All Asians, full scale attack. Who's attacking? This sounds more like a headline from World War II, back when the media didn't hide their racism behind anti-racism. The bad old days. If you could send woke culture back in a time machine to respond to that, Would they be more offended by the headline or the bombing of Pearl Harbor? Not so sure we can assume the outcome of that one. You know, when ISIS members are being called austere religious scholars, this is kind of what you'd expect. But I digress. Despite what the New York Times headline suggests, if you look outside your window, there's a good chance you will not see battalions of troops and armies going door to door looking for Asians to attack. So what is actually happening? What evidence do we have? Good Place to Start is one of my recent shows that you somehow may have missed, which looks at how strong the evidence is for this nationwide narrative. The delicately titled, Stu Does Asian People. We know that at least according to the mayor, an African-American woman, by the way, who was discussed as a possible VP nominee for Joe Biden, that there has been no increase at all in Atlanta as far as violence against Asian-Americans. Obviously, whatever the motivation um was for this guy. We we know uh, that many of the victims, the majority of the victims, were Asian. 
Um, we also know that this is an issue that's happening across the country. It is unacceptable. It is hateful. And it has to stop. That being said, we are coordinating in real time uh, to make sure that our communities have the resources that they need. Uh, we have not seen a significant uptick in formal complaints within the city of Atlanta, but obviously this is a large metropolitan region. Uh, and, and we know that we are, we're hearing the stories. We're seeing them on television. We're seeing them on social media. I see them on social media. That should overwhelm the official reports. The one piece of evidence we do have as far as motivation is from the police. This is Cherokee County Sheriff's Office Captain Jay Baker. He claims that these, and as the chief said, this is still early, but he does claim that it was not racially motivated. He apparently has an issue, uh, what he considers a, a, a sex fiction, and sees these locations as something that allows him to, to, um, to go to these places, and, and it's a temptation for him that he wanted to eliminate. Now, the idea that the murders were motivated by a sexual addiction has now been reportedly backed up by two of his former roommates who said the murderer felt great shame about all of his relapses. Now, who knows? Maybe these people are lying. But either way, you need to know the rules. This is a huge mistake for the police. You can't say the information you believe to be true publicly when it goes against the narrative. I thought we were clear about this. The narrative that this is a white supremacist problem fueled by people who heard the president say China virus is the only acceptable answer. Now, this is sort of developed as the fallback argument. Uh, there's no reason to take this at face value in the first place. He's a suspect who just confessed to mass murder. Good point. But it's beyond absurd to parse it out as it's not racial. He just sees women at these very specific places as sexual objects who exist for his own gratification. Okay. In other words, sure, it might just be a sex addiction, but it's still racism because white people are fetishizing Asians. Got that? It's hard to keep track of sometimes. Now, maybe that's true, but it is a totally different argument and is completely separate from the last obvious and only true narrative from like 20 minutes ago. Did people start sexualizing Asians because Trump said China virus? I mean... Call me crazy, but when I hear a group of people associated with a virus, I don't exactly consider it an aphrodisiac. But this officer has hurt the narrative, so he must pay. Enter the Daily Beast and their brand of search Facebook journalism. Their story, Georgia Sheriff spokesperson uh, posted racist COVID shirts on Facebook. Okay, what is the racist shirt? It is a Corona beer parody. You see, Corona beer is imported from Mexico, and the T-shirt says the coronavirus was imported from China. Except for some reason they used COVID-19 instead of coronavirus, which actually sort of ruins the joke. It also has some fun with the Trump pronunciation of China. Now, is this racist? Is it? The Daily Beast says it is, telling its incredibly stupid readership, quote, it seems the same spokesperson shared racist content online, including pointing the finger at China for the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. But where else would you point the finger? We did import it from China, didn't we? I mean, some strains did have a little stopover in Europe first. That doesn't mean it was some biological weapon or that escaped from even a lab. But it did originate in China. And real criticism absolutely should be thrown at the Chinese government 
and all of the ways that they hid the extent of the outbreak, leading the rest of the world to be caught off guard. Even Deborah Burks talked about this publicly. Ugh. We need more time uh, to talk about this. We, we, let's go through this New York Times piece tomorrow, line by line. It's driving me insane. People should be seen as individuals, not as members of groups. Not all collectivism is racist, but all racism is collectivist. Only seeing people for who they are and caring about each individual can cure the poison that may or may not have driven this lunatic to do these terrible things. And we're never going to stop this crap from happening by trying to win a narrative battle. The only thing that we can do is put the blame where it belongs, on the horrible person who is actually responsible for this horrible crime. Having a First Leaf Wine Club membership is like being a VIP in the world of wine. My wife loves wine, and she, but she's not really adventurous with it. She has a couple wines that she likes. She goes back to them over and over again. That's why First Leaf is perfect for her. First Leaf delivers this incredible box of wine. I don't know exactly how many bottles it is. It's, it's, it's amazing. And it comes in, and she gets to try all these different varieties, all these different ways to kind of expand her horizons. Um, you know, you can save like 60% off retail prices on award-winning wine. And unlike other wine clubs, First Leaf uses an algorithm to feedback and curate your future wine recommendations. So you're not getting a bunch of wine you don't like. It's kind of like a stitch fix for wine. Discover new wine like a VIP by becoming a First Leaf member. Join today. You'll get six bottles for only $29.95 and free shipping. My wife, Lisa, absolutely loves this. Go to tryfirstleaf.com slash stew. Be a hero in your household. Six bottles of wine for $29.95 and free shipping. Tryfirstleaf.com slash stew. It's tryfirstleaf.com slash stew. I'm happy to welcome to the program Katie Herzog. She's a journalist and host of the podcast uh, Blocked and Reported, uh, along with Jesse Single. Uh, of course, you should subscribe immediately. Very funny podcast. Very interesting. There's very few interesting people on the Internet. And uh, Katie's one of them. Thanks so much for coming on, Katie. Thank you uh, so much for having me. That's high praise. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, for people who aren't familiar with you, you guys have really carved out a really cool thing outside of the media circles. Like, I feel like you guys just legitimately don't care what you, what you say. You don't care what people care, think, say about what your, what your point is. I love that. It feels really authentic. And I think part of that is because of your path to get here. Can you tell people about it? Right. So my co-host... Jesse Signal and I were both uh, mainstream media reporters, or he was more mainstream than I. I worked for um, most recently a an alt weekly out of Seattle called The Stranger. I was laid off at COVID. Jesse was a staff writer at, at the New York Times Magazine, and both of us ran into uh, how do I put this? We both uh, we ran into great pushback when we reported specifically on trans issues. So I wrote a piece in 2017 called The Detransitioners, which was just this reported piece about uh, people who transition from one gender or sex to the other and then detransition back. A year later, Jesse wrote a piece on trans kids. And in both cases, there was just this really massive online uh, pile-on for both of us. And in my case, it also went offline. So people were burning stacks of the paper and sending me video of it. There were stickers and flyers posted around Seattle calling me transphobic. And the thing is, both Jesse and I are probably in line with, uh, with most trans activists on 98% of the issue. But 
we deviated slightly in these like very particular points. And what we wrote was really in line with the re with research and data, um, but that didn't really matter. Um, and because of that, we both sort of got pegged as bigots unfairly, and those reputations uh, affected us professionally a great deal. The great thing is that we've been able to carve out our own uh, niches uh, through through forums like Patreon and Substack, which are funded entirely by listeners and readers. And so we don't have to work within institutions anymore. So we have sort of taken ourselves out of uh, out of the institute, the media institution, um, to create our own our own business. And uh, we are two of the worst people to be to be <laughs> creating a business. We don't know what we're doing, um, but we we are at least immune from some uh, some attempts to cancel us. And there have been many, especially around Jesse. Yeah, it's interesting because there really is a, a, a cool world developing where this can actually happen. I don't think this was even a thing uh, relatively recently. And now you have, you know, big names, you know, Barry Weiss and, and you know, Megan Kelly even. I mean, tons of people have gone into this space and have tried to just do this authentic thing direct to the people who are adult enough to understand the jokes, to understand, you know, the search for answers and the search for information. That search is, I think, really interesting, and we've all but deleted it from mainstream conversation. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. So you've seen through the success of uh, avenues like Substack and Patreon that there's a real appetite for people who are willing to uh, question the mainstream narrative. People like Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi and Barry, as you mentioned, and Jesse and I. And it, I'm not talking about people who are like radical right wingers. I mean, most of us are, mm -hmm. are you know, we, we sort of uh, vary from like center left to, in Glenn's case, far left. Um, but for whatever reason, we've become sort of persona non grata within the institutions that we formerly uh, formerly were employed at. And so we found different avenues to, to find an audience. And it's been a huge success for a lot of us. And of course, there are attempts to get us, you know, um, banned from these platforms because people don't like to see us succeeding, even when we're not succeeding in institutions. I think it's interesting for I mean, like our audience is conservative. I'm conservative, uh, you know, sort of libertarian leaning conservative. And our audience is used to seeing this a, a total different picture of what like a cancel culture would be. Right. Some conservative person says something out of line. The media large parts of the media jump all over them and try to cancel them. It's, it's really fascinating to watch. This is not partisan. This is happening to people on the left. It's happening to people on the right. And it is not only destroying, I think, so much of what would be um, a, a, a discourse that would be uh, beneficial to our society, but it also just makes life so much less interesting. I completely agree with you. And it, it is nonpartisan. You know, I don't think that anybody would argue that Donald Trump, who complained about canceler, cancel culture, was not a, a canceler himself. <laughs> um, you could say that a lot. You could say the same thing about a, a lot of the conservative media establishment. At the same time that they're bitching about cancel culture, they're also engaging in it. Um, you know, the interesting thing here is that we have found an audience. We have. We don't need these institutions to succeed, and so that is threatening to some people. And I can absolutely uh, understand why. Um, but this is not really about. The problem isn't about people like Jesse Single and myself or Barry Weiss losing our platforms because we can create new ones. Uh, we have. We have. We have existing audiences, and they will follow us wherever they go. To me, the the bigger problem is that there's this stifling among uh, the stifling of discourse because people. People see what happens when you deviate even slightly from, not even from the mainstream, from sort of, sort of the, the 
progressive narrative. And when you deviate, uh, people will come for you and they will smear you. And that has this, this terrible effect of stifling the conversation because people are frankly scared to say what they mean. And I know this because I get emails from these people all the time. I, I think too, like, it's, it's, that's interesting because I think there's a, uh, there's a thing that happens where this sort of attack becomes the norm. And I, you know, from my side, from looking at this from the conservative perspective, I see this all the time and I talk to my conservative friends about this often. I think it's one of the more interesting conversations on the right at this point, which is you have, a, you have something that happens where we would say a, a leftist or a media source creates this ridiculous standard, you know, going back 20 years and pulling out some you know, quote that was fine at the time, but now is bad. And that person on the right gets canceled. And then this sort of internal battle happens where you, you say, one side says, we should take their rules. They set the rules. They said it's okay to go back 20 years and pull that quote. We should use that against them. Attack, attack, attack. And on the other side, there's, there's the thing that I feel at least, which is when you take those rules that you yourself have said are bad rules and apply them yourself, you're codifying them. You've made, you've let the people making irrational rules essentially set the lines of the debate. And that's a bad thing. What is the answer to this? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. I mean, you have to get to the root causes. Uh, part of it is economics, uh, at least when you're talking about about the media. Part of it is the fact that there are a few jobs left, and people are terrified for their own jobs. And they're especially editors are terrified of these sort of, you know, Maoist 25 year olds who want to come in and uh, and shut down discourse. Um, so you have to look at the root of the problem, uh, and and then to, in terms of fighting back about it, you know, that's. It's incredibly difficult because this becomes partisan, right? Like, I think that, like, I appreciate you having me on this show, of course. I also think that the more the right talks about cancel culture, the harder it get, the harder it gets for people like me who are on the left <laughs> to actually push back against cancel culture because it it looks like it has been weaponized from by the le- by the right, and mm-hmm. it has been weaponized by the right in mm-hmm. many cases. Um, so if I had my way, you guys would stop talking about it, and this would be something that we could like deal with internally. But clearly, that's not going to happen. Okay, I will not say one more word. I promise about Thank cancel you. culture, Thank you. Um, uh, except for this one. Um, you guys did a great show, I think it was a week or two ago, about Donald McNeil, uh, the journalist at the New York Times. And I found this story to be really fascinating, partially for this kind of the same thing you're talking about, in that the right wasn't fired up about it, right? Like the right saw Donald McNeil as this mainstream reporter at the New York Times who was, you know, talking about COVID, really their star reporter of the biggest story probably of the century, and arguably. And he, because he said something several years ago on a trip, basically quoting or acting out a potential scenario that included him using the N-word in a way that was not judged, you know, not in, a, in the, the way that you would normally use a slur, uh, he was canceled. I mean, I think quite clearly. And I thought this story was a, hu- a, a massive story because not only what it says about Donald McNeil and this poor guy who was out of work, but also what it says about what is happening at newsrooms in these major uh, media sources. Can you talk about that? Yeah, this is something Barry Weiss also has talked about. Um, but there, from my experience, there is a generational divide within newsrooms where you have people who are Gen X or sort of early boomers, maybe later boomers in some cases, who adhere to these sort of old school liberal values of believing in things like due process and free speech and holding those values above other values. And that comes into conflict with uh, specifically younger people who value things more like what we now call social justice and anti-racism. And this is how 
having a major impact in newsrooms around the country, not just in terms of, of HR issues and who could be employed, but also what gets covered. Um, so the story is much bigger than Donald McNeil. He is one of many people who have been forced out of a job for uh, saying something, you know, who I would agree that he didn't do anything wrong. I mean, he didn't even use the the N-word. He mentioned the N-word in the context of, uh, of asking a question about whether or not somebody had even said it. Um, but that really didn't matter. I mean, as, as Dean Baquet, the, the editor-in-chief of the New York Times, told his staff, at one point he said, intent doesn't matter. Um, he sort of, uh, he walked back on that later when he got a bunch of pushback, but we have reached a standard right now where intent oftentimes doesn't matter. I mean, we saw that with, uh, you know, um, just today, the, the, the newly appointed editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, uh, a young black woman, uh, what lost her, her job over tweets that she, anti-Asian tweets from when she was a teenager. Um, so there's very little grace. And it's ironic to me because I think that the left has historically uh, been in favor of, you know, uh, uh, I don't want to say lighter punishment, but in terms of like criminal justice reform and, and, and things like that, like oftentimes we're willing to make uh, not excuses, but at least um, exceptions for people who, you know, who, who are who are redeemed and we don't want to see 15 year olds in jail for the rest of their life, no matter what they did. And yet now we've reached this point where there's no grace for anybody. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure redemption's supposed to be important to everybody. Uh, it seems sure. to be going away these days, left and right. Uh, Katie Herzog, the uh, podcast is blocked and reported. Can't recommend it enough. It's not only really interesting, but really funny. These guys are really funny together. And uh, Katie, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Back in a second. Trying to buy or sell a home in these times? It can be very challenging. That's why you need a real estate agent who's coming into your place and saying, you know what? You know that wallpaper you think is, is good looking? No one's going to want it in here and you should change it. And it's going to cost you a few bucks, but it's going to make you a lot more money on this house. You need the person who's going to be honest with you, who's going to say, look, this is, uh, this is the way to go. If you happen to be a person who is escaping from New York, from uh, California, from Illinois, from one of these states who you know locked you down and you just can't deal with it anymore. You're going to Florida or Texas. Just going to Florida or Texas isn't enough. You need to have a good real estate agent to make that experience as positive as possible. You find that person at realestateagentsitrust.com. Get more information at realestateagentsitrust.com. The place to go when you're buying or selling a home, realestateagentsitrust.com. You, of course, have heard of snakes on a plane. So here's John Kerry. Uh, Kerry is a, uh, as you know, climate czar of the planet. Shouldn't be flying anywhere, in my opinion. I mean, geez, he's hurting the planet. However, he was on a plane and did something very, very bad. He took his mask off. Do we have the photo? There it is. Oh, my goodness. It's dangling from his left ear, which is the best way to stop coronavirus. Uh, look, I, with all my belief in the deepness of my soul, I completely believe that John Kerry has been vaccinated for the coronavirus. Why do I believe that? He's old and he's really rich and he's really powerful. So I'm sure he had no problem getting uh, this, this vaccine. I'm sure he was eligible right off the bat. He's probably in group one. So I'm sure he's had the vaccine and there's no reason he needs to be wearing a mask on a plane. It's, 
<laughs> he's actually just doing the thing that he, uh, of course, should be doing and is totally rational for him to do. Problem is, he's telling everyone else how evil they are if they were to do it. So the hypocrisy is the issue. You know, with Nixon, it was the cover-up. It wasn't really the crime. Here, it's the hypocrisy. It's not really the crime. I don't really care if John Kerry wears a mask on a plane. I don't think he's doing any damage uh, by it. And, you know, masks can show some benefits in certain circumstances. But, I mean, this is really, uh, really stretching it. If you think a vaccinated person needs to be wearing a mask on a plane. And he says he took it off for just a moment. The guy who took the picture said it was about five minutes, which is a very long moment. Either way, uh, aren't you just glad John Kerry's back in your life? What a joy. Back in a second. When you use really good ingredients, uh, look, I will tell you this. You're going to get great results. It's going to be a little pricier, I will tell you. Uh, going to uh, Brooker's Founding Flavors, you're going to get the best ice cream in the country. It's going to cost you more than like Breyers or Ben & Jerry's. But again, if you're going to eat ice cream anyway, you might as well have the best ice cream you can possibly get. Guns of Boston is one of their new flavors. All their flavors at Brooker's Founding Flavors are based kind of on the, uh, the Founding Fathers. They have stories behind them. Guns of Boston is awesome. It's got Little Debbie oatmeal cream pies inside. Um, also, they have the uh, Shamrock Smash, I think it's called. It's their St. Patrick's Day flavor, whatever it is. It has fudge-dipped mint Oreos in it, chocolate chip brownies, and Andy's mints all blended inside of a scoop of ice cream. It's incredible. You will find these flavors a whole lot more. I love the red velvet one. It's delicious. They have a great one with like, you know, Heath toffee bar type of things in there. I, I don't know. Just go look at all of them. Your mouth's going to be watering like mine is. Brookersicecream.com. Click the Ship Nationwide tab. It's brookersicecream.com. You need this ice cream in your life. Brookersicecream.com. Ship Nationwide. Happy to welcome back to the program political commentator and contributor to the first, Sydney Watson. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel before this interview is over. Just do it. I mean, even in the middle of her talking, just go over and subscribe. Sydney, thanks for being brave and coming back on the program. Thank you for having me. I was actually just thinking that this chair is so comfortable. I want, I want one in my house. Really? You yeah. can just take that one with you. We actually give one to each guest. Great. Well, I'll, so. just, I'll just carry it out then. That's that. <laughs> yeah, we have a whole room of them. In the middle in the of back. us talking, I'll just. I, I like that. <laughs> um, so let's uh, let's start talking. First of all, you're, you're, you're in Texas now. Yes. You had to deal with a deep freeze. I did. Yes, yes. I heard it was, <laughs> it was quite, yeah. quite tough. It was awful. I mean, I come from a continent where we don't have really winter weather. Well, we do, but it's not nearly as cold as you guys get. Right. Are right. you from Are you from Texas originally? No, I'm from the Northeast, so I'm used to much worse than this. Okay, like, that so, was... so you, you've like acclimated to like basically, you know, freezing to death, like hypothermia. That's just fine with you. <laughs> right. Whereas I'm not no, acclimated well, to that. No. <laughs> See, I moved from the Northeast to Texas because I was so not fine with it. With the hypothermia. I, yes, I hate Specifically. that. I hate that. So mm. we had a pipe burst in our house and it, the whole thing filled with water. Uh, you had no power, no heat. Yeah, so we, I didn't have power for two days, which was a lot. Uh, and it was getting to the point where at one, at one stage, I went back to my apartment to get some clothes and things to go and stay at a friend's house who happened to have electricity. And uh, I was in there for probably five minutes and my hands were like frozen <laughs> to the point where I'm trying to do up zippers and things. And I'm like, I can't mm. feel my hands in my own apartment inside the house. It's incredible. So it was, it was nuts. And then, you know, the, the after effect was I was like, this is not going to look great in terms of billing and all that sort of stuff later down the line. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of people got hit with these gigantic 
electricity bills. Yeah. I guess they're trying to pass some bill to basically say, sorry about that. We'll give you all your money back. Uh, it does seem like the state is trying to do something like that. Because right. I mean, look, we all understand, you know, market rates can be can fluctuate. But mm -hmm. when you have no warning and no control over it, right. it's kind of a problem. Sure. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's the that's the risk that you take when you don't have a fixed rate mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, uh, with your electricity. I mean, uh, we, we were just talking about this, the fact that I just got my electricity bill, which is five times the normal cost. And I, I am with like a set plan. My, my plan is, you know, it's the same, yeah. it's the same rate every single month. And they're saying that I use three times the amount of electricity that I would usually use. I'm a, I'm a single human and I turn <laughs> off all the lights. I am a light turner offer. I'm an unplugger. That is, mm -hmm. that is my way of doing things. Yeah. Um, and I and I looked at this bill and I thought, this is psycho. Because I can't even imagine how many other people are in a similar position as me, but without the fixed rate type yeah. situation. Yeah, I mean, happening. some people had thousands and thousands of dollars. Psychotic. I mean, completely ridiculous. Insane. Uh, hopefully they'll get it squared away. Mm. Um, speaking of Texas, uh, we have a, a, a nice big border yes. uh, with Mexico where lots of people are crossing it constantly. It's mm. not just here. It's the entire border. Yes. We are seeing uh, a yet another mm -hmm. border crisis. And at some point when you have a border crisis, all the time, it's no longer a crisis, it's just the state of affairs. Exactly, yeah. I mean, what I think that they're saying now that the rate of crossings that you have is actually the highest in 20 years, which is, that's crazy to me. <laughs> and especially after all the rhetoric towards Donald Trump where they were saying that he was, you know, improperly managing the border situation. Well, is how is it being managed now then? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Washington Post, how's it going now? <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know if you saw that in the news too that uh, I believe it's somewhere in the realm of 300 or 500 um, migrant teenagers are being put up now in Dallas, in the Dallas Convention Center yeah. because of this overflow from these uh, facilities at the border. So now this is not even a border problem. This is an actual Texas problem. Yeah. And it's going to it's going to spread all over the place because the people who aren't being held there mm -hmm. are being shipped to other locations in the yep. United States to be with relatives, uh, which, again, I, 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 this, we're just incentivizing this behavior. Oh, absolutely. And then when you have Biden and uh, his cronies saying things like, oh, we're going to give illegal immigrants a pathway to citizenship. I just think, like, what a slap in the face this is to anybody who's actually gone through not only the process of legally coming to this country and, and you know, getting a green card or citizenship, whatever the case is. But I mean, like to basically to anyone who's had to spend all that time effort, energy, and money on this. Mm. I mean, thankfully, I'm, I'm glad that I was born a, a U.S. citizen and didn't have to go through it, but I know so many folks who are in a position where they would love to move to the United States, but run into the issue of, you know, visas and how do, how do I do this? You know, it's, it's such a complicated process, but here you can just jump the border yeah, and you're like, golden. Nice and easy. Uh, they make it so much easier. It's just a small river. You know, um, so <laughs> it, it's, it, they even have bridges over it. You just walk right over them. Beautiful. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to see this because I think you have, uh, there's two parts of this. Mm -hmm. One, the sort of immediate crisis where a bunch of people are in an area where they shouldn't be and they don't know what to do with them. Right. And if you're going to change policies, what you need to do beforehand mm -hmm. is prepare for what is coming. The Biden administration did not do that. They totally dropped the ball on that. On the other hand, they, they're, part of this is intentional, right? They are incentivizing. They are advertising to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Please come. Even though they're saying every once in a while they say, well, no, no, don't come right now. But they're but they're with their actions. They're saying, please come mm -hmm. get here before we make this, uh, uh, you know, uh, this we draw this line, because mm -hmm. if you get here after that, it, we're not going to be able to give you that pathway. Right. So please come right now. I mean, I don't understand how you could take it any other way if you were from these countries. Well, I always want to know. I mean, so so when I totally agree with you, just as, as an aside, but I always want to know how 
it is that a the average citizen isn't more angry about this because mm. again it's it, borders there's a reason that we have borders there's a reason that countries are sovereign i mean thankfully i come from a country that has a big giant <laughs> ocean around yeah. it so it's it's less of a problem but people still come on boats and we still have a you know not quite as big an issue but we still have an issue you know with this happening sure. but i don't understand how a people can let the government get away with it and then the other thing too i always think is why? What is the, why are you doing this? Why are you incentivizing people to do these things illegally? Why are you bringing in, uh, undoc- oh, I'm not even going to use their terminology, mm-hmm. illegal people sure. who are doing, you know, who, who often, I'm not saying all of them go on to commit crimes and things, but there are massive economic ramifications in terms of, you know, like the tax pool and things like that. Why are you giving these people driver's licenses? Why are you creating sanctuary cities? What is the benefit to these politicians to do that? That's my question. That's what I want to know. Yeah, because I feel like there's there's things I don't mind importing. Tequila. Sure. Uh, it's yeah. great. We import all the tequila you want. Beautiful. Now, we all know that many of the people that will come here, they may not commit violent crimes. Of course not. Mm-hmm. But some will, sure. just, just based on percentages. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason to import crime. No. You know, like, we need to be more careful with this process. And, and it seems to be this sort of just, it, be, it becomes a talking point, becomes a way to bring in new voters, whatever, whatever the mm-hmm. situation is. And the left in this country does not seem to be concerned about this issue at all, mm-hmm. even though they're in the middle of dealing with it and they can't deal with it. It's clear. Well, it's weird, too, how they always say things like nobody is illegal. Or, you know, I guess that this is where we have taken leave of actually enforcing and putting emphasis on following the law in Mm. this capacity. It's so it's just this is a very American problem, too, in the sense that other countries, when they talk about the migrant crisis, you know, let's say France or England or whatever, when they have people illegally coming into the country. It's it's again one of these things where I think that they're more honest about what's going on, whereas in the United States, it's it's very the the conversation surrounding it is very muddied and it draws into it. Oh, it's racism. Well, I'm sorry to say, but the majority of these people coming from Honduras or El Salvador or whatever the case may be, these are people who are you basically, you know, they're, they're, they're of like, you know, Portuguese and Spanish ancestry. Like they're basically no different to you and me in a lot of ways. Sure. So again, you, you bring it back to this, this racism thing that I don't think is part of the conversation. Yeah. It's, are you coming to the country legally? No, then don't come. Right, because I mean, you have friends in Australia who might want to come to the United States, but they sh- I would think you'd agree. Yes. They shouldn't come here. Do it legally. Unless it's legal. You think I'm gonna hide them under my bed? Be like, you know, <laughs> this, is, this is not like an occupation thing where I'm protecting no. someone. It's don't come to this country illegally. That's. It makes me so mad. <laughs> let, me, hey, let me ask you where you stand on a sort of a conservative dividing line that, that has sort of developed over the past few years mostly. Mm-hmm. There's been these two kind of camps um, where you have one side that says, look, we don't want illegal immigration. What we do want is legal immigration. We want people mm-hmm. who are the stars of their country to come over here legally, go through the process. Mm-hmm. And maybe the idea we should think about is making that process a little easier for the people we want here. Right? Mm-hmm. The other side kind of says, look, we have uh, an economy. Not everyone's employed. We have risks there. We should not let even illegal immigrants come in for at least a while because we need to protect the economy. Uh, how do you fall down on that divide? So I, 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 I personally am very anti-immigration mm-hmm. uh, in most capacities. Mm-hmm. And people would argue, oh, but Sydney, you're an Australian that now lives in the United States. I'm a citizen. Mm-hmm. I probably don't count on that. Front. No, you would not. But I'm anti-immigration in the sense that I think you have to build up your existing population 
population. And a lot of people, again, will argue that it has to do with economic success. You know, the more people that you have, you know, the more jobs that get filled, the more businesses that get created, the more ta- people who, who can pay taxes, it bumps up the economy. That is the argument that people often make when it comes to immigration. Mm-hmm. And they're not entirely wrong. Yeah. I mean, I think that you can mask a lot of economic problems by bringing in a lot, a lot of people. And I think Australia does that beautifully. They <laughs> mask issue by, by importing a bunch of different people. Um, but I do think that, that the main people that must be considered and must be taken care of first and foremost are the people who are born and raised in that particular country. Because why on earth would you sell out your existing population to a new group? It's, and I'm not saying that there shouldn't come a time where you, yes, of course, you know, immigrate to this country, enhance this country, be better for this country. But, you know, if you have people that are already in poverty, it's almost like that thing of sending money to other countries rather than keeping it at home and ameliorating the existing you know, structures or whatever the case may be in yeah. your existing country. Sure, sure, sure. So it makes sense. Is that complicated? I feel, hmm. Yeah, no, I, I'm, Sometimes I'm, I, you know, I understand. Like, I'm torn on it because I, I do, I like what uh, legal immigrants bring to the country. I, you know, I like it. And I, right. I th- you know, it's, I think it does make us dynamic in some ways. Like it but, enhances what's, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think p- people who, I find, I, I, you know, sometimes the most patriotic I feel mm-hmm. is when I talk to a legal immigrant coming to this country because right. they, you know, I just, I just, I mean, I was born in New York. I just lucked into it, right? I just happened right. to be in the best country because I, I lucked out. Right. But these people like fought to get here. Right. They had to go through that like ridiculous system that we set up. And so I do like that, but I, I understand that it's also, especially in times of economic strife, mm-hmm. it can be, it can, it can go the other way. But I think I find that to be an interesting line among conservatives right now, an interesting part of the conversation. Well, I mean, I always think about the fact that how many of these people are going to end up on welfare. And sure. again, it's like you said, the, these are people who are who are fighting. Mm, I don't know if fighting's the right word. I don't know how many of them are in that position too, mm-hmm. because I mean, like I, I look at the fact that Elijah Schaefer, who um, he is one of the hosts here at Blaze, yeah. his wife actually just got her green card to stay in this country. She's another Aussie too. Mm. Um, and I, you know, you watch. You guys are the, invading us, aren't you? Yeah, we're coming. Mm-hmm. We're coming in droves. <laughs> um, it's actually quite difficult to to become yeah. to live in the U.S. as an Aussie. Believe it or not, you well, guys like, made it hard for us. And we made it hard in return. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, th- I think that you know because I think it's it's we get into this idea of immigration as this thing where it's like, well, everyone can just come and let's just make it easy for everyone to right. come. I think being selective is important. Yes, you know, I do like too. Australia's a strong ally of ours. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of cultural similarities. Yeah, um, tons. I, and, you know, I think people who are coming here, you know, we're talking about people who might be, uh, you know, highly educated in technology and medicine and all these things that can be really useful for our society. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, I look, I, I'm just selfish. I want to exploit that stuff. You know, <laughs> on the other hand, you can't just have people coming in and being a drag on your society either. So it's, it's a tough balance. Well, that's it. I mean, that's the biggest thing is, again, you know, how many people end up on welfare? And this is, again, I think this is the part of the conversation that people often don't want to have. You, I yeah. think what you're talking about are the migrants who come in with their university degree, with money in the bank, prepared and willing to become an American citizen, cut ties to their country, and basically just fully embrace the Americanization of yeah. who they are. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people who don't do that, no, and that's why true. you end up with tribalism. That's why you end up with little niches of people mm-hmm. that are in their own little segregated groups, and because that is the net effect. People want to be around their own. And when I say their own, I mean people who are from their own country or who look the same as them or who are the same sex or whatever the case may be. Yeah. So I think immigration is a lovely idea in theory, but I don't think in practice it actually turns out the way that people hope and expect. Okay, before you go, I want to uh, I want to talk to you about this development in the UK. Uh-huh. A politician yeah. comes out, and I guess in response to a murder, yes, which uh, it was a murder. A police officer was responsible for this, mm-hmm. so this I don't know how this policy would make any sense. But it was a, a woman who was murdered, and the politician wants to uh, create a curfew. Mm-hmm. 
for men, a 6 p.m. curfew for men Mm -hmm. of all sorts, seemingly. Mm -hmm. I don't is this a serious proposal or so the the gist that I got from her talking about this and this is a a, um, so in Australia and in the UK, we call them greens. So Mm, they're they're like the the hippies. Sure. The earth. You have some green party people here. Well, there you go. Love, lovely. We I mean, we have to call them uh, watermelons because they're green on the outside, but red on the inside (laughs) because they're commies. Yes, Mm, very much so. (laughs) (laughs) So this greens, this greens politician in the UK was like you said, she said we should have a curfew for men, a six o'clock curfew. I think she meant it hyperbolically in the sense that, yes, we could we could theoretically do this and it would protect women and keep people safe because she said that it would it would downgrade um, um, discrimination right. mm-hmm. and I think it's in response to people often saying to women hey women take stock of what you're doing and where you're at because you know you are an autonomous person with agency and we don't want you to get murdered right. so she was so she actually made follow-up comments where she said well this is basically my suggestion is better than telling women to you know just stay home sure Have you ever heard someone say that to women? Just stay home. Never heard that. And no woman. Like this this idea that like you should of course be careful with what you're doing. That doesn't make you responsible if something bad happens. But you of course want to watch out. Do you see this building though? Like this. This. I was. I was looking at some of the Oscar nominations, and one of the movies was about a woman who goes to a bar and fakes being passed out drunk every night so that some guy will hit on her. And it seems like I hadn't seen the movie, but it seems like then the guy will hit on her. Uh, try to take advantage of her, and then she'll turn the tables at the last second and probably murder him. I, that's kind of the basic there's sense of it. There's a film about It's just this? a movie, yeah. It, oh, my you know. God. And again, it's not a serious movie, but it does seem like there's this idea, yeah. there's this kind of overall current to try to make it seem like all guys are just bad. They're just bad things yeah. or bad creatures. I wish we didn't have any of them. Mm-hmm. And like, let's try to show that men are just basically evil in all of our entertainment, all of our news, all of this is pushing. You know, not everybody's Andrew Cuomo. Is I guess my point. I mean, is this, is this ev- a real current? Not everyone's Biden and not everyone's Andrew Cuomo. Right. There we go. That's how, you know, but you're right. I mean, and I feel like America has actually less of this narrative going on, believe it or not, wow. than Australia and Canada and the UK. Really? Weirdly, Commonwealth countries just are very anti-men, very gynocentric. It's quite strange, actually. <laughs> and, I don't, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's just the British thing, the fact that we're all part of England in whatever capacity. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But, you know, you're certainly right. I, it's quite strange when people say these things unironically or ironically and suggest that men should be treated in a different capacity to women. I always think, how does that help anyone? Because it's like we were talking about actually before the show. These aren't the only two options. It's not just men have to stay home and women have to stay home. That's that's not it. There, there has to be a logical way of dealing with violent crime. And, you know, I, I even suppose in some capacity maybe even the subjugation of women. There has to be a way of dealing with that. But the way is not by discriminating against men. I don't know how these people can say, bad to discriminate against women, we don't like that, but discriminate against men, all good. That's fine. does seem to be the way of the world right now uh, with with, uh, all the anti-racism stuff and all these things. It's like, well, just discriminate against a different group. That'll solve it. Exactly. That's not how you solve it. Let's build one group up by pushing another down. (laughs) That is mm, beautiful. It doesn't make any sense to me at least. Uh, I don't know. Somebody, I guess it makes sense to. Sydney Watson, uh, political commentator, contributor to The First, and of course, host Sydney Watson on YouTube. Uh, make sure you subscribe to the channel. And of course, we told you before to do it, so you probably have already done it by now. That's how this works, right? That's exactly it. The government just gonna... tells you what to do, and then you do it. And then you follow through. That's what happens. And I'm going to take the chair. <laughs> All right. Oh yeah, have, have, have fun. It's a, it'll fit in your apartment. It's a very, very cold apartment, but it'll be okay. Exactly. Sydney Watson, thank you for, <laughs> for coming on the program. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Back in a second.
A lot of people are saying the worst thing about the coronavirus pandemic is how many times the Nancy Pelosi sucks pen got out of stock. I know it's it hurts us as well. However, it's available now. It's the first time since Thanksgiving. Nancy Pelosi sucks pen dot com. That'll bring you to the page with all the merch. And there you can get the Nancy Pelosi sucks mug and the Nancy Pelosi sucks T-shirt. All the fun goodies you could possibly imagine. Thanks so much for hanging out this long in the show. Since you made it this long, you're kind of one of the cool kids. Click like on the video now and we will see you tomorrow.